0: Ladies and gentlemen, we have made it. We are back in Romans. It's been a long road. It's been a long journey. I know some people who took 10 years to teach Romans. We We had a good pace. We had a good pace. Some people take 10, 15 years to teach through Romans. Send them an email and say, when are we going to finish? <laughs> All right, we're in Romans chapter 7. What we're going to have to do, because it's been about two months since we've been in Romans, is do sort of a previously at Solid Rock, right? Let's do a brief review of chapters 1 through 6, because we have to. Romans. You can't just pick up in Romans, right? It's not like one of the Gospels. It's not a a narrative where you can take time off, deal with some other things, and just jump back in and be like, all right, here we go. And the law says that it just that's not how we, we are. We are so far removed in many ways from the argument, the main argument about the law that Paul is making, that to be in Romans, we have to kind of get back into the mind frame of what's happening in the book to really grasp from it. It's not like one of the Gospels where I could just open a narrative, read it, The middle of the gospel, and then we can just go right to it and understand what we need to do or how to listen to it. But with Romans, and particularly this chapter, this chapter in particular, we have to kind of enter back into the world of Romans. So let's refresh just for a few moments before we try to go through the first six verses of chapter 7. Let's let's remember what we learned about chapter 1. Chapter 1 is the introduction of Paul to the church in Rome. But it's also his introduction to the world as it is. So Paul begins addressing the believers in the church. He's encouraged to write them a letter. He's yet to visit them, but he knows people. He sent people to this particular church in Rome, which we'll hear about in chapter 16. In fact, that whole chapter is pretty much his hellos to people that he knows are in the church in Rome. So he introduces himself, speaks very highly of them. But then he ends the chapter talking about the way that the world is, sin, how sin comes into the world. Through idolatry, through loving the creation more than the creator. And there are consequences for doing so when he lists a number of sinful categories that are currently in the world because of mankind's rejection of God. And this acceptance of what God has made. So he ends that chapter sort of reminding them that you live in a sinful world. In chapter 2, he transitions from talking about the sins that most people think are of the Gentiles. And he moves to now the sins of the saints in chapter 2. So it's almost as if they were reading chapter 1. And people who were like, well, I don't do that, 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 okay, I'm good. Then he gets to chapter 2, and then he starts to talk about the things that you do do. No pun intended. Stop it. It's the sins of the saints, it's the self-righteousness. It's the sinful judgment. It's the hypocrisy to judge other people for the sins that they do when you yourself do the same sins. You just think your sins are different because you have the law of God. So it's kind of like the church today. The church has an infatuation with being critical and judgmental towards non-Christians, but not towards themselves, not towards ourselves. We treat non-Christians as if they should be obeying the Bible and we judge them. And we allow Christians who don't obey the Bible the benefit of the doubt. But 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, switch that. He says, who am I to judge outsiders? He said, God judges the outsiders. So this is what he's getting at. So we can also be guilty as charged of the sins of chapter 2. And so he highlights what that is, but he's making a point. He's, He's trying to show that everyone is sinful and needs Jesus Christ. So you can't put your hope in anything but Jesus Christ since He's come, if you're going to escape the judgment of God. So he's building up. so he's making sure that he's hitting everyone. And in fact, that's what chapter three is about. Chapter three is essentially the no one is sinless chapter. That's where we get the all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, there is no, oh the Jews don't, just the Gentiles do. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he's building up this. He, he wants people, you know, in the military, when you go to the military, this is what they tell you. They want to strip you down based upon who you are and build you back up as a soldier. So that's why these guys yell in your face, you ain't really, you mama's boy, you do it. They yell at you and you get mad. And if you say something, you down on the ground and they make you run and they do all this. So they take away all that self-confidence you have in you to build you back up to a new confidence as a soldier who's willing to take commands. Well, this is kind of what Paul is doing. He's he's tearing down all the self-righteousness that people have to get to the point where they're like, wow, I, I guess I do do that too. I may not do this, but I do do that. He's taking away all of it so that he can get to the point where people are like, what must I do to be saved? So he's systematically building on top of this sort of doctrine of the sin of humanity. Or if you're a Reformed or Calvinist, total depravity. He's building on this concept that all people are sinful. And then he begins to make this contrast between the Mosaic law and the law of faith, faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he transitions to what faith actually is, and he talks about Abraham. Abraham, as we know, in Genesis, particularly 12 through uh, 22, is the main character of that part of the Bible. And then Genesis 15, 6 It says Abraham believed something that God promised and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was faith because he didn't do anything but just believe what God said. And that faith becomes the beginning and sort of the measurement for all faith is to believe what God says. And so in in chapter 4, he begins to flush out sort of who Abraham is. Abraham is not just the father of those who are Jewish. He's the father of all people who believe in Jesus Christ because like Abraham... We have faith in God based on what He says. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas right before the ascension, when Thomas was saying, "Look, I'll believe that Jesus is resurrected when I see it for myself." He said, "I, I want to see the holes in His hands and the hole in His side, and I will believe all, everything that you're saying. Until then, I don't want to hear." Jesus shows up. Greetings. I wish I wish I could have seen that. You would just be talking, yeah, man, I don't, whoa, he's just right there, greetings. He shows up, Thomas, put your fingers in the holes. Put your hand in my side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And he said, you believe because you see, but blessed are the ones who do not see and believe blessed are the people who do not get to see me in the flesh to prove that I rose from the dead like you do, but still believe that I rose from the dead like you now do. That will be people in this room. Unless you can prove that you've seen Jesus in the flesh after the resurrection. Which would put you in St. Elizabeth somewhere around there. <laughs> Abraham is the father of our faith. And so chapter 4 is building us into the person of Abraham because even though the Bible never really says to be like this person, the emphasis of the scriptures is to be like Christ. But Abraham is still an example for us because Abraham is a human being. We were talking about this the other day on Saturday. It's just sometimes we think that people in the Bible are more human than we are. They're just more human than us. They're just regular folks just like us. When the angel appeared to Mary and to, and she was afraid, just like you get afraid when you hear a noise in your house and you move. If an angel appeared to you, you would, I, would, I would be gone. That would be it. <laughs> Cardiac arrest, heart would stop in a the moment. We're, they're no different. They got afraid. Paul Acts 18. We think of Paul as fearless. Let's go into the city. You know how people have this, let's take over the city for Jesus. Let's be on fire for God. And let's go into the city and preach the gospel. Let's take over the campus like there's no fear. God's on our side. Let's go after it. And then you realize Paul was afraid. The mighty Paul, Acts 18, God appears to him in a vision. And he says, do not be afraid. They're people. Just like us. That's what makes the Bible beautiful. Our heroes are not flawless except for Jesus. But even he bared humanity. How does Jesus stand in the garden of, and he's crying, Lord, take this cup from me. Our heroes do not stand in the face of danger without some sense of trust in God. He moves on to chapter 5 after he leaves Abraham. He starts to compare. Now he's, he's working his way up. And so you see this. You, you, you hear some about Christ in chapter 1. You don't hear as much about Christ in chapter 2. Then he works his way up to chapter 3. Then he brings us into Abraham, who was promised to be the, the, the father of many nations based on Christ. And, and then you see all of this happening. And now Christ really appears in chapter 5 as a contrast between Adam and Jesus. And he's reminding you, look, there are two kinds of people in the world. You know how there's always these statements. There are people who love Coke people who love Pepsi, whatever that means. Right? People who love steak and people who don't. I think people who don't love steak are blasphemous. But there is, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who are in Christ and people who are in Adam, and that's it. That's the only real dichotomy. So he highlights the distinction between what it means to be in Christ versus Adam. And that in Adam, all people die. But that in Christ, all have eternal life. Now, he's not talking about people die in the physical sense. Because everyone dies unless you're alive when Jesus returns. We know that Revelation 20 teaches a second death. People who are thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, eternal fire. So in chapter 5... He's reminding us what it means to be in Christ. He's really introducing this idea that Christ is greater than even the Father, the one who, who we all come from, Adam. And That Adam brought sin into the world, but Christ brings a measure of grace into the world that supersedes the sin. Because when Adam brought sin into the world, he only did one thing. He disobeyed God one time. But when Christ comes to bring forgiveness to the world, he forgives a billion sins. So the grace that Christ forgives is greater than the sin that Adam brought into the world. Because it only took one disobedience. But all the sins in the world that Christ forgave, a number can't even imagine. If he just forgave all the sins in this room today, it'd be in the millions. So the grace to forgive sin is greater than the sin that came into the world. Because its ability to cover all these people for multiple sins is great. And then he moves us into chapter six. And chapter six is one of the most beloved passages in the Bible because we so connect to what it's saying. Because even though we're believers, many of us feel defeated by sin. Many of us feel defeated by habits and patterns that we have. Many of us feel defeated by external influences. We experience bouts of depression. We experience not lacking joy. We have difficulties in our marriage. Sometimes our parenting and interacting with our parents is, and it can, it can be hard to be joyful. We experience a world where, where you stand up and you hear someone like Carla just explaining what happened in China and your heart breaks. Wow. We have people over here who have dusty Bibles. And you have pastors over there with their bags packed, ready to go. And while I anticipate a day where I may have to have my bags packed, that's not how I'm thinking right now. I mean, I don't even know what I would take. I mean, a pastor has his bags packed, ready to go to prison. He's not saying if they come, he's saying when they come. I'm ready to go. And it's not like when you believe in Jesus Christ, you have a contract that says, should prison come, you're okay with that, and you sign the dotted line. Many of us don't choose our trials or sufferings. In fact, if, and if most of us had a chance to choose what we went through, it'd be pretty minute. I mean, I would. If, you have a, if God said, hey, here's a scale of things you can, you're going to struggle with, sufferings you're going to have, I'd be more at the bottom of the list. Like, all right, Lord, I'll choose stub toe multiple times flat tire Uh, she broke my heart in sixth grade I'll choose I'm not going to choose persecution I'm not going to choose cancer I'm not going to choose a strange relationship with a loved one I'm not going to choose raising children to know the Lord and they become adults and walk away from Him. I'm not going to choose the things that God allows us to go through. So we read chapter six and we, we enter into this these wonderful promises that even though that sin feels like It is winning the battle. We are reminded that in Christ, he's won the war. And so we can fight and we can persevere and we can do it. He gives us confidence and reminds us that the things that we feel sometimes don't have mastery over us. It's almost as if he creates these categories of real and true. Well, this is how I feel and it's real. I feel this way. I feel discouraged sometimes. I feel like it's hard to have joy. I feel like this. But he reminds us of what's true. I don't feel, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it feels like to feel forgiven by God. When I was the part of the family of churches we were in, I used to respect these guys mightily. But one of the things they used to say is, do you feel the pleasure of God? And I used to try hard, and then I just one day said to my friend as passionately as they said that to me, I said, "No, <laughs> I don't. I don't feel the pleasure of God." This, <laughs> was a, this is a, what was that? Movie? It was a movie in the eighties, a running movie, and it was it was a it was an English movie, *Charis of Fire*, and he said, "When I run, I feel the pleasure of God." I don't. I wake up and it's like, man, I got a long day today. Man, I got to read today. I need to pray today. All right, Lord, let me. I feel tired. So he's saying this is real. This is real. But then he says, what's true, I don't feel like a son of God, but I am a son of God. I don't feel forgiven, but I am forgiven. I don't feel like I have power to fight the temptations of sin, but he says, you that's not true. What's true is you can and you will. So he brings us into Romans chapter 6 to highlight that even though sin is a struggle, we have victory over it because our faith is in Jesus Christ. And then he comes to Romans chapter 7. And this is the chapter. (laughs) This is one of the most controversial and debated chapters in the Bible. So we're going to have fun. This is one of the most. I mean, for Paul... So at this stage in his his argument, he's making this argument, and this chapter is sort of the end of the law. This is the last chapter in Romans where the emphasis that Paul has is on the law, which we consider the Mosaic law. And I'll get into that in a minute for those of you. Just think of the Ten Commandments, sort of earning your salvation by obeying God really rigid and really strict, these really strict rules. This is the last chapter where Paul makes that the primary emphasis. After chapter 7, he transitions to the law of grace or the law of the spirit or the law of Christ. This is the last chapter where the law is so heavily talked about. This is sort of the end of the law, and he uses a common sense analogy to help bring sort of his final resolution about the law, at least in this book, in this book. After this chapter, Paul is moving on. When we get to chapter 8, totally different feel. Chapters 9 through 11, totally different feel. Chapter 12, totally different feel. 13, 14, 15, 16. He's gone. This chapter is it. But what he does is he offers us a very controversial, somewhat confusing analogy and language. And I love it. You see, this whole chapter, here's the, here's the debate. Here's the controversy. Who is the man that Paul is talking about in verses 15 through 24? Who is the man he's referring to? Who is the I? You logically say Paul's talking about himself. Okay, survey set. The question is, is he talking about I, Paul, as a regenerate, as a believer, as a, as a Christian, Born again, faith in Jesus Christ, when he's talking about what I do, what I want to do, I do not do. And when I want to do what I do not do, sin seizes the opportunity. Is he talking as a regenerate believer? Is he talking about someone who's not a Christian? Is he talking about himself as an unbeliever? Or is he personifying the nation of Israel under the Mosaic law? These may to you sound like not a big deal, but this is a very, very, very debated, controversial chapter. And many well-respected theologians are on different sides of it. There are some people who I respect mightily who say he's talking about a believer. And when you read those verses, you think, yep, that's exactly how I feel. How could he not be talking about what the Christian life is like? And on the other side, you say, Well, there's no way he can be describing a Christian. He just spent the whole chapter six saying sin no longer has mastery over you. So how in the world now in chapter seven is he talking like I can't do what I want to do because of sin in me? Well, doesn't that nullify everything he said in chapter six? We'll see. In two weeks we'll get to that passage. We have to start somewhere. We have to start with where he starts in verses 1 through 6. I will say this, though. This is one thing I will say. This whole chapter is talking about the effect of the law. It's talking about the effect of the law. So Paul is not going from the law to then some other experience. It's the effect of the law Of Moses, which means trying to obey God under the old covenant, the way the Ten Commandments and so forth. And we'll get into that a little bit more specifically. That's what this chapter is about, the effect of the law. And the law is just God's standard of obedience before Jesus Christ. That's the best way to describe it. God's standard for obedience before, prior to Jesus Christ is what the law, when they're talking about the law, Mosaic law, that's what they mean. God's standard of obedience was one way until Christ came, and then it became another way after Christ. And people who still try to obey God in the old way are being told you can't do it. If you do it that way, you're not going to make it. The only way you can do it is to do it this way in Christ. And that's the argument that he's making. What's challenging for us, is we didn't live under this regime. Many people in this room didn't come from one way to obey God to have to learn how another another way. Maybe a few of us, maybe some of you come from a different background, maybe Catholic or some kind of other way where you feel like there's a way to obey God that I came from that now I have to switch differently. But for many of us, it's from night and day. I was a non-Christian, and now I'm a Christian. So the concept of the law versus Christ is confusing to some degree because we're so far removed. It's like, well, what's, what's the difference? What's the difference? And there's a lot of differences. But it was so much a part of their life that he has to spend a lot of his writing making sure that they say, listen, the way to obey God before Jesus Christ no longer Exists For us, a way to understand this would be something like this. Maybe not the best way, but a way to understand it would be something like this. Many of us have smartphones, right? You have a smartphone, and you get these updates. You get updates consistently on your smartphone. You have to download this update. But you're always told, once you download this update, you can't go back to the way it was before. Like, you can't turn your phone on, take your battery out, and it'll go back to it. Once you download this new update, so if you're an iPhone user, it's you know update 12.2.1. Once you download that, you can't go back to oh man, I like I liked when it was at 10.1.2, six seven nine ten. You can't do that. You can't go back to that once you've updated. Well, this is what he's saying. Christ is the update. He's the update. Once you now that Christ has come. You have to accept this. You can't go back to this. You can't. If you stay here, it's not going to work. He's the update. So in order to make this clear, he brings us to a very common sense analogy about marriage. But it's not as common as it appears, but it's very common sense. Let's look at verse 1 of Romans 7. This is his bringing closure to the issue of the law. And here's a common sense analogy. We're looking at verse 1. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? It's a good question. It's an obvious answer. Yes. Yes. The law rules over someone as long as he lives. Once you die, that's it. That law has no more effect on you. And so it's a common sense question. So he asks this question, don't you know that? It's like, yes, it's an obvious answer, absolutely. Very intentional, very easy. He's drawing us in. He's drawing the church in to like, yep, that makes sense, yes. The law rules over someone as long as he lives. But he does something here. He stays with this motif of death. There is a motif of death that Paul uses more in this book than any other book. And we see it a lot in chapter 6. There's this this theme of death that he maintains throughout, and he keeps it in this passage. And this motif is more important than we realize. But it's simple. He's saying this. Here's the simple point. The law, whether it's Mosaic or even the laws of the United States, don't you know that when you die, those laws are no longer in effect? Okay, so when I, I I mean, I, I can't prove this from Scripture, But I'm pretty positive there are no seatbelts in heaven. But there's not going to be any police seeing how fast you fly and they'd be like giving you tickets, right? Those laws are gone. If our country ever gets to a point where they're they're giving tickets to people who've passed away, we're in a bad place. These laws don't exist. Once I die, whatever laws that I was subject to in the United States no longer apply to me because I'm not alive. Well, that's the point he's making. The Mosaic Law, whatever it is, it's simple. Once a person is no longer alive, those rules do not apply to them. That's what he's saying in verse 1. And he continues on bringing in the analogy of marriage. Verse 2. For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law Regarding the husband. Okay. In this culture, very common sense, even in our culture. If a woman dies, even if she keeps her wedding ring on in memory of her husband. If her husband dies, okay, she's no longer married to him in the law sense. She can remarry. She can she can do it. That doesn't, that doesn't count. But in this particular culture, in this culture, he's making a very strong point. It's actually an interesting analogy because he could have chosen the husband as an example. In a marriage, if the wife dies and the husband is free from the obligations. But he focuses on the woman, the wife. He says a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding her husband. Now, at this time in redemptive history, it was the husband who issues a certificate of divorce, not the wife. Now, in our day and age, anyone can pursue divorce. Anyone can do it. You have children that can emancipate themselves. These things didn't exist in biblical times. Women didn't have that many rights. They didn't. So if a husband who had the authority to divorce his wife, it was the husband, not the other way around. So what does this mean? this church would have understood the dynamic that Paul's getting at. By Paul using this analogy of a wife being free from the law of marriage at her husband's death, he's highlighting the most binding contract a person could have over them. A married woman had the most binding contract because the only way out of it was a certificate of divorce, but even then, she may not be free to marry. The only way she could have a complete and total separation from the binding contract would be if her husband dies. So this analogy is highlighting the strictest kind of covenant a contract a person could be under. And he's comparing it to the Mosaic law because that was the most binding contract a Jew was under. There was no greater responsibility for a Jew was to obey the law that God said before Christ. It's the toughest, most binding contract. And so by focusing on the woman who can only get out of her binding contract if her husband dies, says the Mosaic Law is the most binding contract on you, but now you've died and no longer bear the responsibility of keeping it. This church would have understood that, that only a woman is only free when her husband has died. In the same way, the only true way the Jews are free is by dying to the rigid demands of the law. Perfection or punishment. He continues the analogy in verse 3. So he makes his point. Okay, this is true. Verses, chapter, verse 1, yes, we agree with you. Yes, according to the law that we live under, that's true. Verse 3. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then if if she's married to another man, she is not an adulteress. So again, he's emphasizing, if her husband dies, she's good. If he doesn't die, then she's not good. She can't be she's an adulteress if she continues on without the binding contract. She's in sin. He's taking that marriage analogy and saying, "I want to put over you now the Christian life because there's a binding contract on humanity, on you, which was the Mosaic law." How to how to obey God before Christ? Okay, that was a binding contract. You were bound by it. But now you've died to it. You're free now to obey Christ. The husband died. The woman is free now to not have to be obey what he says. But here's the challenge, what he says here. He says, let's look at the beginning of verse 3. If she, marries, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress, so she'll be in sin. So what he's saying is you can't do both. You can't act as if you're free. You're in sin still trying to live a certain way until there's a death. There has to be a death. You can't just pretend like, well, I'm going from here to here unless there's a death. And he's placing that analogy. He's, he's trying to show them He's trying to show them that it's not sinful to leave, to transition from the way you learned how to obey God before Jesus to the way you need to obey God now that Jesus has come. He's trying to help them say, hey, listen, it's not sinful. And this marriage analogy is helping him do that. And this would be a big deal to them. Again, we can't connect to this in the same way. Because we didn't come from the Mosaic law. Many of us were living for ourselves before conversion, and then we start to, we gradually begin to obey Jesus, and we leave that form of life behind, and it's sort of a no-brainer for us, even if we have certain struggles connected to it, right? It's so, a no, we start to leave, and we, there's, there's, we love Jesus, and we want to sing about him, and even though we struggle with certain things, we love him. There's joy, there's mercy, there's grace, there's we clap when we're, when, when we're sad, we, we, we still trust them, we do all these things, it's a difference, but for them it's like, okay, wait a minute, so I have to obey God this way? Well, but that was always this way. If you've ever gone to another country where the steering wheel is on the other side and you drive on the other side of the street, it is a paradigm shift. You get in the car, and you think, man, I'm at the go-kart track. This is, this is different. I'm on the passenger side to me, and I'm on the other side of the street, and it is hard to drive. And what's funny is it's the same steering wheel. It's often the same accelerator and a brake. But the paradigm shift is that I'm so used to driving on the left side And being on the other side of the street, that you know what? I'd rather just, if they have Uber over here, I'd rather get an Uber to wherever I'm going. And depending on where you're at, you might might have to get a camel or something, depending on where you are. I'd rather travel a totally different way because I can't make the shift, even though it's still a car, other people are driving by like it's nothing. The paradigm shift is I'm used to being over here and driving on this side of the street and now I'm on the opposite side and I feel like I'm going to crash just because it doesn't feel right that's exactly how these Jews felt wait a minute I'm used to I'm used to when I sin or if I if I come near a dead body I'm unclean and now I have to do all this stuff and now you're telling me I don't have to so I don't have to go look for any I don't have to go to the market and buy any more Birds, if I commit a sin and go to the priest and have them sacrifice them, I don't have to have blood sprinkled at the altar anymore. So now I'm allowed to go to any part of the temple. The curtains torn, I'm allowed to do that. I, I don't have to ask someone to intercede for me. Like I can directly pray and God will hear me. Wait a minute, that's a paradigm shift for them. That's a paradigm shift. This is what he's trying to help them see. Now, I don't know what the paradigm shift is for us because it's different. But there's something, maybe for us, it's just simply, I just, I'm just i forgiven. I'm a son. God is a father. For me, I didn't grow up with a dad. I grew up with a mom. The dads in my hood were streetlights and older guys occasionally. I had no dad. And I remembered, I used to, I, you all know this, I used to give my mom Father's Day cards for years. Not because I thought she was a dad, but because I respected That she was raising me and my brother in difficult neighborhoods and did the best she could to get us out of those neighborhoods and provide for us. We look back on those times, and my mom sometimes can have regret. I'm just like, Mom, you did the best you could. Like, "What, what do you mean? I didn't have that. And so when I became a Christian, the concept of God as Father was very difficult for me. That was very difficult for me. I would say it, I'd believe it intellectually. But from an experiential, I just didn't connect with that. I just didn't connect with God as father. That just I didn't understand what does that mean. It wasn't until I became a dad that it really started to make sense to me. Where you just love your kids. You love them. When they're babies, you love them. You just change their diaper and they poop again. No or they're just two, three years old and you tell them to not do something and they do it, but you still love them. You forgive those kids. You wanna protect them. Sometimes you discipline them because if you don't, it might be worse for them. Sometimes you say no to things because you know if I let you eat all that candy, you're gonna get (laughs) sick or you're not gonna have no teeth. (laughs) I don't want you gumming at five years old team was still growing. I want you chewing. You know. You say no to things. You you react in certain ways. If you if you think they're in danger, I remember one time that people looked at me because they thought I was angry at my son. We were at Bowie Town Center, and I was walking into the um, was walking into the food court, and I had my two older boys were on my right, and my younger son Mateo was by the street more. And so I was like, I said something to Giovanni. I was like, "Von, von," and I said something to him. And I looked—I just happened to look over—and Matteo was like, "Rate one more step. He's in the street, and this car's coming." So I yelled out, "Buckets!" And he got scared. And people looked like, "Wow." They probably thought, "What a terrible dad he is." But I didn't yell at him because I was angry. I yelled at him because I was afraid. I wanted to grab his attention so I could get him. But then when I got a hold of him, I was angry. <laughs> <laughs> We're just being honest, right? If you laugh, you've done it. I'm just being honest. I was angry. It's like, don't go by the street, the cool the corner again. And then he started to cry and I realized, oh son, I'm sorry. I said, forgive me, son. I was afraid. I thought something would happen to you, and I don't like being afraid. And so I lashed out in anger. Forgive me. And he forgot as soon as he got one of the aunt Anne's pretzels. It's a beautiful reconciliation story. What I'm trying to say is if you have any issue with someone, Aunt Ann's presence will change all that. <laughs> but I yell at them, and I, people look like, man. And I'm sure people, I'm, I'm judging them that they're judging me, right? But there's things you do as a dad, and you still, I didn't change an ounce that I love them. In fact, I reacted that way because I do love them. I want to see you make it to three, son. <laughs> when I became a dad, that's when his, the fatherhood of God started to make way more sense to me. I started to understand it. So I don't know what it is for you, what the, what the paradigm shift is. But what God is trying to say is, listen, you have faith in Jesus Christ now. That changes everything for you, even if you don't necessarily experience it all the time. It changes everything. You are these things that God says that you are. And so he's trying to help them understand this reality by using this marriage analogy They say, look, this, this contractual agreement is over because of a death. The husband dies. The wife is no longer bound to that. But what's interesting is, it seems like we're the wife in the analogy. But that's not exactly how the story leans. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also will put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit from God. So his point up to this point is you have died to having to obey God the way you used to before Christ. And now you're free to obey God differently because Jesus obeyed God perfectly. But in this story, the husband died, not the wife. Even though we relate to the story as the wife and the freedom of it, in the analogy, the husband dies. In verse 4, it says, we have died, not the law. The law hasn't died. It says, we've died to the obligation of the law. This is a very important point to make. When Jesus said, look, I didn't come to abolish the law, right? He said, I came to fulfill it. See, the problem is not that the law is the problem. And he's going to cover that in more detail in the next message. The law isn't the problem. So the law doesn't need to die. We need to die to the ways that we used to live. His point is simply this. The obligations of your relationship have come to an end because of a death. In the analogy, the husband died, the wife is free. For us, we died and we're free. Now, what do we die to, what does that mean? What do we die to? The release from the righteous demands of the law, we've died to two things primarily. Here's what we've died to, obeying the law perfectly Obeying the law perfectly and then being punished for not doing so. That's the theological implications. For many of us who don't come from one way to obey God to another, the law is simply, I've died to the desire to obey myself and glorify myself and now I can honor the Lord. I've died to some of the Ideas, attitudes, temptations, particular habits that I used to do. I no longer do those things because I'm forgiven by Jesus. And so now your obedience is very much glorifying to God. Even if sometimes he has to get your attention because you're too close to the road. Or he has to say, "Now nah, you can't have this. Because you won't eat your dinner. The release from the righteous demands of the law. This is a quote from a commentary. It says the release is not from the righteous demands of the law. But from the rigid demands of the law. And from the curse. That follows from its demands. It's not the law that dies. It's the believer. The law still points to the kind of living. That is pleasing to God. So his point is. There are ways that we have to obey perfectly, and we can't, and we'll be punished for it, but we won't because of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people don't live to glorify God, so it's not like they're transitioning from this law to that law, but almost everyone, everyone lives to glorify themselves, right? And here's the thing, no one wants to be punished for it. So you can think of the law as this way. The way we trust ourselves to get to heaven apart from Jesus. The way people trust themselves to get to heaven apart from Jesus. That's the law for them. And even if people don't believe in God, nobody wants to go to hell. You ever been to a funeral where you know this person wasn't a believer? And they say they're in a better place? Or, or people, someone famous dies, or someone that didn't, for all intent purposes, doesn't seem like they believed in God at all. There's nothing that would give you that indication. And people are like, RIP, rest in peace. What peace? The rich man didn't have peace. If you don't believe in Jesus, there is no peace. It's perdition. That P is perdition, not peace. No one wants to experience, even if they don't believe in God, they don't want to experience eternal punishment. So everyone has some moral standard that they believe will get them to heaven. And for them, that is the law of Moses for them. For us, we didn't have a law of Moses, but we had our own way of doing things that we thought were okay. That even if God disagreed with them, if they're okay with me, that's the law for me. The question is, is that law sufficient enough to get you to heaven? And the answer is no, even if it feels that way. Verse 5 for when we were in the flesh, in the sinful passions aroused through the law, aroused through the law, were working in us to bear the fruit for death. This is going to be explained in greater detail in verse in next week's message. Greater detail. But it's, it's, it's con- consistent. Listen, Paul doesn't assume that we're reading the Bible months apart from each other. So he assumes that when you read it, you read chapter 5 and then 6 and you're at chapter 7. So chapter 7 isn't a whole new idea from what he's saying in chapter 6. It's the same truth. He's just phrasing it a little differently and using an analogy to hopefully make it more clear. Being in the flesh is not even talking about literal flesh, right? Because Jesus had literal flesh. So he's not talking about being in the body saying the flesh that he's talking about is simply my desire to live sinfully is what it means to live in the flesh. My desire to live sinfully. That's one way. But from chapter 6, when he talks about the flesh, Paul's saying something different. He's saying the flesh is, it's sin in us making it impossible to obey God perfectly. And therefore, we're going to be punished for that. In hell, if we continue trying to live out a law that we think will get us to heaven because it somehow pleases God. The point is, there is no law apart from God's law, and the only way to please God sufficiently is to do it perfectly. Once you sin one time, that's it. Once you sin one time, there is no insert new coin. Once you sin once, that's it. This is why Christ comes. Christ comes and says, all right, I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm going to obey it perfectly, and then I'm going to be punished for everyone who doesn't obey it, both willful and not. So whatever you thought was good before Christ, saying that's done. Now that there's Christ, you have faith in him, you'll be forgiven, even though you still sin." It's changed. As far as I know, and someone could correct me for am who knows Judaism more than me, even in Judaism, I don't think they sacrifice animals anymore for their sins. Even that has been, for them, taken out. No one's living the way they used to live before Jesus. He changes everything. Let me give you a clear example for Jewish people. Leviticus 5 says this. If someone touches anything unclean, a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or unclean livestock, or unclean swarming creatures, without being aware of it, he is unclean and incurs guilt. So if you touch an unclean animal and you weren't even aware of it, you're guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, Any uncleanness by which one can become defiled without being aware of it, but later recognizes it, he encourages guilt. You come near a dead body, in a certain amount of feet, you're like, I'm unclean. Now I have to do all these things to get clean. Which is what makes the Good Samaritan story amazing. Because the priest in the Good Samaritan story... (laughs) The religious leader, they probably thought the body was dead and didn't want to be unclean. They probably thought the body was dead. In this day and age, you didn't want to come near a dead body because it's like, if you were walking, you were like, oh, man. (laughs) Dad. Now I got to do all this stuff. I got to live outside of the camp for seven days. You can't do anything. Jesus comes. Here's what he does in Luke chapter 7. I wish I could have been here. This is what happens. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. Now, I don't know if you've never been to the east. I've been in India, and they carry people, dead bodies, I mean, on these, like, almost like on a cot. And they carry them. They don't touch them, but they have to carry them out to be buried. I mean, this guy was dead. It's not like he's on his way to the hospital. He's dead. And it said a, a, a large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't weep. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped. Now, the scripture doesn't say why they stopped. I think they stopped because you're not supposed to do that. What are you doing? You're breaking the law. He's dead. I think they stopped like, what is he doing? But this is Jesus. He's fulfilling the law. And it says, it continues on. The pallbearer stopped and he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him went throughout all Judea. If anyone else would have touched that body, unclean, according to the law. Jesus touches that body, not a problem. In Jesus, when I was in India, they used to say this, no problem in India. No matter what you ask. We'd be driving. Hey, you got got any trash? Throw it out the window, brother. Like, throw it out the window, no problem in India. She'd be like, throw it out the window, throw it, brother, drop it. Hmm? Everything, no problem in India. No problem in India. Hey, can I? No problem in India, go ahead. With Jesus, no problem with Jesus. You come by a dead body now, you're not unclean. You're not unclean. You sin now, you're not looking for pigeons doves you ask for forgiveness you have a relationship with God that he'll speak to you, he'll listen to you right now not when you come to church not if you talk with me first right now right now things are different when Jesus comes Perfect obedience and sacrifices for disobedience are gone because he handles both of them. Really what Paul is getting at is the significance of Jesus Christ. That's really what he's saying. I mean, if you think about the language, if the law which was given by God and the pursuit of the law before Jesus was a good thing, after Jesus, it's bearing fruit for death is what he says. That's crazy that God gave the law. It's not like man made up these laws, right? God wrote with his own finger on two stone tablets that Moses walked down Mount Sinai with. God created, you read Leviticus, you read the rest of Exodus, God is meticulous. Add just this much to this. Add this much. Only do this much. Measure it this way. Just that way. This color. This color. When you sacrifice this grain, this animal, this way, this amount of blood, this very specific very specific is God the law was very specific it was given by God it was good so to say that the law now is bearing fruit of death is a bold statement because it was given by God but when you compare it to What Jesus is able to do versus what we're able to do, there's no comparison. So this is really about the significance of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It says the law was bearing the fruit for death in verse 5. In other words, sin in them kept them from obeying, being able to obey the law the way God intended. But when your faith is in Jesus, since he obeyed the law perfectly, it says now we bear fruit for God which means we make progress. That's crazy. He ends in verse 6, at least this, this, this portion this morning. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. The way he's using this analogy could make you think the problem was with the law that God established. And in the next few verses, next week's message, he makes that clear that that's not the problem. Now, I said earlier that the motif of death was very important. And I want to explain briefly why. Because there's a continuity between the old covenant and new covenant. And it's all about death. It's always about death. Death established the old covenant which was the Passover and Exodus. The firstborn sons of Egypt, or the firstborn of everything, were killed by God, but God also told the Jews that their firstborn would be killed if they didn't put blood on their doorposts. So death establishes the old covenant. Death establishes the new covenant. Jesus, because in, the, in Egypt, The Jews had to kill a lamb to participate in the death of the old covenant. But in the new covenant, because the lamb has been given, we don't have to die. We don't have to kill a lamb. We die to ourselves, our sinful living. It's interesting that Jesus says this. You hear this in John 10. I lay down my life willingly, and I take it back up. Listen to how we imitate Christ. Jesus says, I laid out my life willingly and I take it back up. And yet we make willing choices to die to ourselves, to die to our desires. Jesus is dying on the cross because of our sin, and we're dying to our sin because of the cross. Death always establishes the relationship between God, it's whose death do we trust? That's his argument, but it gets way more intricate in next week's message and then in that last section where he's talking about when I do this, I feel this way. Who is the man? Who is the I in verses 15 through 24? Well, you're going to go to piece of who it is next week, and then in two weeks we'll cover it.